Dazzler's Craft. Handcraft custom trainers designed in-house. From your favourite football team or player to that band you've always loved. Dazzler'sCraft.co.uk to My Best 11 podcast. Today we are joined by an American international goalkeeper. That's right, another goalie. Marv and I were talking about this other day. Um, how many goalkeepers we've had on. Um, started at Indiana Uni um, and spent a large portion um, of his time at Luton. Um, a few loan spells around the place. Uh, then obviously QPR, Columbus Crew, New England Revolution and back um, to the UK. And... Um, over all of his time, got, if I've got my research credit, had picked up 10 caps for the United States of America. Today, we are joined by Jürgen Sommer. How are you, Jürgen? Oh, great. Thank you guys for having me and uh, look forward to being part of the show. Fantastic. Marvin, you're over in the States as well, um, yeah. but you know Jürgen quite well from his Luton days, do you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jürgen came over and... Um, <clears throat> established himself in the Luton team quite quickly. And what I will say is that when you hear Jurgen talk now, that that was how that that was him. Listen, I've never seen the guy, he can maybe like correct me if I'm wrong, angry. Oh. He, he, that's how he spoke. That's how he spoke. He said, Marv, you have to pick up more you Marv, you have to be a little bit tight. It was that was it. You have to be a little bit tighter. Listen, you can't give him that much space in the box, Marv. You're making me work too much. <laughs> so you went, you went from Les Seeley to Jürgen Sommer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you had <laughs> Alex Chamberlain in there too. So he was a, he was a great mentor for me and right. A great role model for a young yeah. goalkeeper to be around a guy like that. So that was, that was fun. Fantastic. So we're here to listen to, and um, Jürgen pick the best 11 players he's ever set foot on a pitch with. So it can be loan spells, it can be international, or it can be his club career. So what we can do is go through all the way through these players. And as we go through, we'll ask a number of questions to Jürgen just about his career, find a little bit more about, about him, um, really, and, and a bit of his story. So first question we ask, because we base this on best 11, Jürgen, is what formation have you gone for for your best 11? You know, working with my son, Tommy, last night, we're trying to squeeze in all the people we want to recognize. Uh, we're going to go with a 4 one 3 So I started with a 4 4 I was listening to uh, one of your previous podcast guests, and I was, thought I was going 4 4 until we really had to grind through the people. <laughs> and then we got to 4 one 3 and which was kind of interesting because kind of later in my career, towards the end, those kind of more nifty formations started to come into vogue, right? So it, it kind of fit the bill a little bit. Excellent. You can, Excellent. And you can yeah. give honorable mentions. Um, yeah, yeah, I have as well. Don't let me forget. I got a few honorable mentions yes. here. Okay. And yeah. as we go through, as we go through, Jürgen will um, give us some clues to see if myself and Marv can, can pick the players and guess the players. Um, and most importantly, you at home um, or wherever you are can try and see if you can guess the players and beat myself and Marv to that. So let's get going with your goalkeeper, Jürgen. Of course, one of the strange positions for you because you would never have played with somebody on the pitch. It is. It is. Before we start with my goalkeeper, though, I have a little, 
I'll give you my first clue. I have a little of an Australian legacy and my whole process to go from South Florida to England to Luton Town. And that would be my agent who represented me in the connection that got there. So I'll give you a couple quick tidbits, see if you can guess it really quick. Okay. Uh, so you would, so the agent you're trying to guess was a professional athlete, was not in football. So I'll give you that. It's a kind of a sport England is world renowned for. Cricket. So what happened, what happened was I was so naive about the whole process. You know, Jimmy Ryan brought me to Luton Town initially while I was still in university and I had a little bit of time left to finish. By the time I came back, I think I saw the last match where he kept Luton Town up against, I think it was West Ham. Then I think he got the sack after that. And then Pleaty came in and then took me on a preseason trip and then signed me. And, and then he actually, you know, Pleaty brought me in and said, Hey, you know, I need to speak with your agent. Let's sit down and uh, put this deal together. And uh, you know, I was just shocked. I didn't know how the whole process worked. I didn't have an agent. I didn't even know who to call, but I had some good friends in Florida through a soccer coach who was, believe it or not, he was Egyptian, transferred to Australia and played for the Australian national team. I'll give you his name, Michael Mandalis. And he also had really good friends that were in the sporting industry. They, uh, they hosted masters tennis tournaments around the world. So, and I would coach their kids in the summer when I was home from university and we just became great friends. And uh, Roger was the name of the husband. Yvonne was the name of the wife. And that's all I'll give you as a clue. And uh, so I called Yvonne and Roger and Roger was actually English. And he said, I'll call a friend of mine who'll come up there to Luton and represent you with Pleaty and put your contract together. And uh, that was the first time I met the guys when he walked into Kenilworth Road with me. So that so was a tennis player then. That's right. That was that was Yvonne and Roger were acquaintances of mine that I got to know in Naples, Florida. They lived there at the time because I was coaching their kids and their mutual friend was my goalkeeper coach, my soccer coach there in Naples. So they called a friend of theirs and he actually worked in around the Fulham area for a big organization there in that sport. And he came up to represent me and Pleaty obviously recognized the guy and he had a world famous tennis partner who was left-handed. Oh, what's that? You're joking. Are you, what? McEnroe. Yeah. He was McEnroe's doubles partner. Oh, not, um, what's his name? Oh, do you know Andrew? His wife's English. Oh. He was a president of the Lawn Tennis Association. You guys, you call yourselves English. I know, and I love tennis. I, I can't think of his name. He's, he's I'm not a tennis fan. I don't have any idea about tennis. Peter Fleming. That's it. I knew it. I mean, I did. I mean, yeah. Peter, so, so you were represented by a tennis player as your agent when you first walked into Luton? Yeah, because I called Yvonne and Roger because I knew Roger and Yvonne were helping me go on trials uh, throughout Europe. When I was in <laughs> wow. So he set me up with numerous clubs in Germany. Uh, Schalke, Bayer Erdinger. And so I was doing things like I had a German passport, right? And a German name. I speak German. And Yvonne's husband would set up these masters tournaments all over the world. So I actually played in one in Gelsenkirchen in Germany with Ili Nastasi and all the old names wow. of tennis. So I called him and said, Roger, I need help. I'm in England and they want me to sign a contract. And I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. I need an agent. So he sent Peter Fleming up to represent me. And I got it, you know, Pleaty Marv, he just got a big kick out of that, right? So that was really fun. 
And that was Fantastic. the first time I met him, but Peter did a great job for me. I think he negotiated my first two contracts here with Luton Town. So, uh, yeah, that was a lot of brilliant. fun. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. That's an amazing story. Amazing story. So, we'll get on to goalkeepers then. Let's go, goalkeepers. Remember to give us some clues as you go through. And then you can do some honorable mentions at the end of each, okay. of each kind of position. All right. This should be pretty easy for you guys. So, um, how can I really start? I would just probably say big, deep voice, big presence, you know, mountain of a man. Um, what other clubs? Did you play for any other clubs? Oh, you want? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, if I gave you the club, that would just not, make it too easy, Marv, right? Okay, then, okay. Well, give us some some not so little mustache, dark hair, you know, just cool as a cucumber. Nationality? He's English. Alex Chamberlain. No. No, Alex was mustache. A mustache. Alex was great. Had a mustache. Even at, at one point, pulled it back into a long ponytail. And I think he got a lot of abuse for that. Played in the southern oh. end of England. What's that? Not did he play? Did he play for um, Arsenal as well? He played for Arsenal primarily. Yeah. Why did you play with David Seaman? I did. I did so much research and I didn't stumble across well, that. When did he play with David Seaman? I'm intrigued. I'm assuming playing against people is the same. I or were you guys just wanting people on the same team as me? On the same team, sorry, uh, on the same team. Oh, okay. So we'll do a bit of a twist today. We'll do a bit of a twist. This is going to okay. make, I'll cross out all my research. We'll do a bit of a twist. No, that's pretty David Seaman then. So you played, again, was that when you were at um, Luton or was that when you were yeah. at QPR? Just at QPR. So yeah, I'll do a little bit of both. So guys that I, I did, I have some that I did play with, but also kind of in a best 11 saying these are guys that I thought for me, Right. You know, as a professional footballer looking at them, I'm like, wow, they're, you know, they're special players in their respective positions. So, um, fantastic. So, Seaman, so you played yeah. against Seaman. Yeah. I what did he, did he, what age were you at that stage? What, mid 20s? I was at about 95. So, I was probably mid to late 20s. And, you know, obviously at QPR at that point and playing them. And, and uh, he was just so gracious after the game. You know, how you would go to the players' bar and see our friends and, he was in there. And so I just introduced myself to him, you know, obviously for me being a goalkeeper, I just uh, really enjoyed watching him play his style, his composure, you know, just always cool under pressure. And he was just such a professional, such a great, you know, uh, colleague, I would say at that point, you know, didn't, you know, obviously have his first couple Premier League games for me and being there for the first time and, you know, having a chance to play, on the same field with somebody like that was, was pretty cool for me. I really enjoyed that, but he was great, you know, and just enjoyed just over the years watching him play. And obviously we all have good days, bad days, but you know, all in all, just an incredible keeper. And, and so I enjoyed that, but in terms for me um, from a goalkeeping position, obviously I mentioned Alec already, but I don't know, Marv, give you a couple of clues of our goalkeeper coach that came into Luton town from time to time, a couple of times a week. You know, the old cat that was legendary. Uh, I don't know if you can remember his name as a goalkeeper trainer. He drifted to a number of different clubs, played in a World Cup. Oh, yeah. Um, Spent some time Dimmy. in the U.S. Dimmy? Peter Dimmy? Benetti. You remember Peter, Peter Benetti? Benetti? The cat. Yeah, the, the cat. cat. That's right. So yes. from a goalkeeping standpoint, Peter Benetti was, you know, for me as a young, you know, goalkeeper coming to England for the first time at Luton Town. 
granted he wasn't with us every day, but I mean, he was instrumental in just the education process of being a goalkeeper angles and positioning and just kind of teaching you how to be a pro. And obviously the activities we did with him were great. So it was just a great learning experience. And that's one thing I really enjoyed. I think it was all the great coaches that I had and that I was able to come across, whether it was at Luton or Queens Park Rangers. And, you know, I was a, I was a first American goalkeeper there in the UK in the first division and also then in the Premier League. So it was all relatively new for us. You know, we have a lot of great coaches in the US, but not with that type of international experience, worldly experience. And, you know, how to be a pro, how to get up every day and carry yourself, you know, and that's where Peter, for me, was really instrumental. So I forgot, I forgot, I forgot about him coming in the Ergs. Um, he did. He came in yeah. a couple of times, didn't he? Um, I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. Was that when Platy was there? Was that? Or was that in Jim Ryan's first? Jim Ryan's. Um, I think he crossed Jim over both managers. Um, yeah. I think he did a number of clubs, not just ours, but you know, he came in a couple of days a week, and you know, was a great guy. I know he passed away recently, so yeah. Um, but yeah, just again, Fantastic. just a great. You know, just great to be in his presence and share his experience and knowledge. And yeah, so that was that right. Was so that's goalkeeper. Let's move on. So we will go through and look at players you played against then, against yeah. and for. So we open it up. So we'll go right back or left back, whichever one you prefer. You. We'll start with a left back. Sorry, I just got better stories with guys that I played against. So. <laughs> that is it. Yes, yeah, that's, that's what makes you special. You, you just do whatever you want. Go on. Yeah, so left back. Who did you play against left back then? I'm joking. Some clues. All right, some clues. Uh, He was probably one of the first players that would roll up his shorts really high so it would expose his quads and his legs, and you wouldn't say anything to the guy because you'd be afraid he'd come cut you in half. Um, Did Did he play for West Ham? You know, he might have. I would just stick to his primary club. Primary club colors were red and white. I'll give you that. Yeah. He got a lot of Mars, I think. Was not in Manchester, was not in London. But he managed a club in Manchester, if it's the player I'm thinking of. Yeah. Well, you guys, yeah. Remember, I... On a, pa- on, a paper, on a paper play deal, I think he was managing up at Man City, wasn't he? Not Spurs? Not Spurs? Yeah. 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 And started his career on. off as a part-time player in North London. London? See? Yes, at Woodstone. Yes, and you were talking earlier off air about players working their way up and having different types of players, and he's the type of player, I think, that really appreciated, and uh, I don't know, maybe appreciated is just a different, wrong word, but really got, he worked his socks off to get there. Um, we're talking, of course, Jürgen about... Stuart Pierce. Stuart yes. Pierce. We got it. We're, we're on a roll, Andrew. See, we, You're we, on a roll. This could be good. We could, I'll give I you my Stuart Pierce story, Marvin. You'll appreciate this, right? So I think we we're playing for Luton Town at the time, and Alec has gone on to Sunderland, Chamberlain, right? So now it's, you know, I get the nod. So I'm nervous as all can be, right? My first season as a, you know, starting goalkeeper. So one of the games is Nottingham Forest. And I, as a goalkeeper, there's certain grounds you love to go to and play that I just play well. And I love going to Nottingham Forest because you remember, Marv, there was a big club at that yeah. time, lots of fans, you know, obviously a great team. And, so I always enjoyed playing there and would play well, but I was still nervous my first season. Anyway, there was free kick outside the box, left-hand side, edge of the 18-yard box. 
And I'm thinking, all right, I got this, you know, I'm trying to organize my two man wall. Cause you know, it's not really a direct shot on goal. You know, there's lots of people in the box and all of a sudden Stuart Pierce starts coming up to take the free kick. And I'm just like, Holy shit, you know, not Stuart Pierce, please. <laughs> so I'm looking around trying to scramble, put a two man wall together. And I think the only people I could get was like Scotty Oaks and, uh, uh, I got one of my, who else was there? Oh, Richard Harvey. So like a Richard Harvey, Scotty Oaks, I'm like, Oh my God, I've got, this is like the most feeble wall I could put out there, but I'm like, all right, he's not going to shoot at the wall. He's going to slice it in, you know, and kind of flash it in front of the box and I'll have to kind of come out to collect it. I mean, he unleashed the hardest free kick and literally Scotty Oaks and, and, uh, my wall just split into two. They dove for cover and it went right between the wall, skipped on the ground. It was a little bit wet out there. So the ball, it picks up more velocity. So I'm having to come back across myself to make sure it doesn't go into the goal. And it skips down, hits my chest, hits my jaw. And I thought, please, God, let my two front teeth still be in my mouth. You know, it just rattled every tooth in my mouth. And then, it, you know, that spilled out and somebody smashed it in for a goal. So, but I just thought to myself, that thing had so much force and velocity on a strike. I was like, it almost just blew a hole in my chest. Um, but just, just a mountain of a man, right. As a player. And, and later on, I got to kind of bump into him as I was doing some scouting for the U S I was in the UK and he was, I think with the England under 21s as a coach, if I'm not mistaken at the time. And uh, just great person to chat to real professional about football. Obviously it's a, you know, he, he's taken it to the high levels of management and being involved in the game. But yeah, I didn't realize he worked his way up that way. So so I was yeah. so new to football, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yes, he did indeed. So we'll move to right back, unless you want any honorable mentions for left back. Um, no, I did have an honorable mention for goalkeeper, but we can come back to those at the end. We'll, we'll do oh, that. that's a good idea. Yeah, we'll keep that. So right back. All right. So this player played in number of clubs. Uh, in England, also in Scotland. Uh, you guys have talked about him before in your show, so it shouldn't be that hard, especially for Marv. Um, but just a, a beast of an athlete, as we all know, can run for fun oh. up and down and just, I mean, good as gold is in terms of personality and, and uh, camaraderie and friendship. So I uh, consider him a close personal friend. And uh, Andrew? I assume it's an it's a player we've had on here, isn't it? It's a player you've discussed on your show before no. and pretty recently. I don't think he's been on here. The player no. hasn't been on there, but one of your other no. guests mentioned him. Oh, I was going to grab Alexander, but maybe Alexander came after Jurgen left the club, did he? So he was one of the young guns at Luton Town. Scottish, Andrew. Yeah, Graham Alexander's Scottish. Yeah, I know. He's a sorry, yeah, but I mean... He's, he wasn't born in Marv Scotland. Knows. Marv knows. Yeah. He wasn't born in Scotland. Go on, Marvin. Who is it? Paul Telfer. Yeah, Paul Telfer. Oh, right back. Yes. He, I know he right played back. on the he played right midfield, but as he got older, he played, you know, yeah, a little bit right of center back. back and right back. So that's what that's what I was never gonna guess Telfer because right. I never had it. I didn't have him down as a right back because I always imagine in that team, Julian James at right back or um, right. even I'm trying to think of other right backs, but I've never saw Telfer as a right back. But yeah, I think but... he, played, he played right back a, a few occasions for Coventry, Celtic, Celtic under Strachan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Gordon Strachan loved him in that role. I mean, he's so versatile; you could put him anywhere. But right, Marv, if you're going to have yeah. somebody as a wingman next to you, I mean, Paul was a tireless worker, and you know, put himself out there. So, 
Get your clue now, Jürgen, about the cross-country running. So, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> you guys are covering it. That guy could run for fun with his golf clubs oh, on his back. He, you know? he wasn't normal. He, yeah. He was, yeah. It's just abnormal. He was... What's was the expectation here. of you as a goalkeeper? When they do these runs and things like that, what's the expectation of you um, as a goalie? And do you think that's changed nowadays? Yeah. I do. I think the, the whole <clears throat> progression of the sports science, you know, that you see with sports performance, I think it's become so position specific, at least here in the U.S. with all the major sports that um, for goalkeeping is, you know, it's a, a little bit different of a performance gauge, I would say, or measuring stick. So you're you're really looking for more dynamic movements and explosive movements than you know, the capacity and the lung capacity to run long distances, be a half sprinter, half marathon runner like Telfer was. Um, so, yeah, I think that's changed with sport, you know, the science of sport. And, and, uh, but man, I know in the Luton town days, I can't remember where we went somewhere in Dunstable Marv to run those mountains or those hills yeah. with movie. Remember that? <laughs> Dunstable Downs, it's called Dunstable yeah. Downs. Yeah. With a big line, with a big white line, the chalk line. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, our goalkeeping guidance was, you know, do the best you can and stay with the pack, you know, and which wasn't hard to do with Alec Chamberlain and Andy Peterson, right? Andy wasn't the most <laughs> fleet of foot guy out there. So I was in good company. I could keep up, but I was not challenging uh, the Ken Gillards and the Paul Telfers of the world. So, yes, yeah. I'm going to drop in there. The reason why you, you mentioned Andy Peterson. I'm, this is a personal thing. I'm just going to chuck in here. You, I got my first ever pair of goalkeeper gloves from you. Oh, seriously? Yes, because I used to live across the road from Andy Peterson. And I know you and Andy Peterson used to spend a lot of time together, um, particularly in that kind of 92, 93, 94 time. Um, I spent a lot of time with him. I don't remember, know if you, you won't remember back then, but I used to live across the road as, a, as an eight, nine, eight-year-old, and you, and you gave me... I was playing out the street and you gave me my first ever set of goalkeeper gloves. Wow. See? <laughs> See? And was, thank you. But there was no way Andy person was ever going to give me any bits. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm right, Marv. We know Andy. It's hard to yeah. find him when the, uh, when the whip came around. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. But when, it, when the drinks were coming out, it was like, yeah, he was there with his hand there first. He to go grab his first drink. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> yes, but that, that's just what I saw. I just wanted to, now, because you were talking about Andy Petson, I just wanted to chuck in there. Yes, so thank you very much. But um, I digress. I digress, but thank you. Uh, so, centre-backs. <laughs> All right, so I'll, I'll kind of put the disclaimer. These are non-teammates of mine, but just folks I played against that I thought... Right. You know, because being an American, kind of being in, in England, right, I was the first goalkeeper there. I was trying to make sure, I, you know, do my homework. So I, was, I watched a lot of football matches. I had a, I lived in, uh, remember Kerry Hughes and Mark Pembridge lived in Diggs yep. in, uh, in Toddington. That's and, right. Uh, I ended up moving my way in there when Pembridge moved out and, and uh, Reg and Margaret Baston were the names and they were fantastic. You know, I mean, literally it, you know, I'd leave a pair of dirty socks and Margaret would have them washed and ironed and on my bed, like within the hour. I was like, Margaret, please stop, you know, but Reg and I would watch lots of games and he loved football. So, you know, we would, especially the goalkeeping, I was trying to watch strikers and, 
and, uh, you know, just to get more familiar with players. So when I got the chance to play, I was prepared, but so I spent a lot of time obviously watching central defenders too. So my first one, um, it's kind of, uh, I'll make it a little easier for you. It was in the premiership, um, big, tall, lanky center back, great on set pieces in the box, um, played for a London club. So I'll make it a little easier for you. Um, Levy did get, Levy did get England caps as well. A lot. A lot or? Trying to think. See, I don't know all the personal stuff of these guys, so I can't give you as many clues. He was a, no, but was he kind of, was he somebody who, who you know played for England or is it kind of, no, he might have. He should have. He's one of those personalities. I'm just not sure if he was like, Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland, oh. Ireland, a white kind of right. guy. But okay. I think he, he did. Um, that's thrown me a bit. He was a teammate, oh, no, of, goal, teammate of my goal, of the goalkeeper I chose. So that should help you a little bit. So, Tony Adams? Tony Adams, yes. Yes. I wasn't sure if you're going David O'Leary, but I wasn't sure how far back yeah. you were going. By yeah. the way, you talked about Ireland as well. Tony Adams. What a, what yeah. a central defender he was. And one of the reasons I put him on the list is you know, you see guys that have a certain fire in their eyes and a passion, you know, for the game. And, and then, uh, you know, you come across some set pieces and I'll, I'll give you my uh, Ian Wright story and Tony Adams story on set pieces. So we, my first, one of my first premiership games was Arsenal at Arsenal. And so for me, it's a lifelong dream, right? I can't believe I'm even on the same field as all these players and in that stadium, in that environment. So the first corner kick against us, I'm, you know, getting everything organized, like Marv said, go here, you know, trying to f- make sure I got all my, all my angles covered. And uh, Ian Wright comes up to me and just starts chatting to me, laughing at me, chatting, hey, big man, how you doing? You nervous out here? Ooh, you know, just kind of, <laughs> I, mean, I see Tony Adams trotting out, but I'm like, oh my, oh shit, you know? Like, that's the last thing you want to see is this guy coming to the box because, I mean, he'll climb over anything to get his head on the ball. And uh, so right as a corner kick comes in, Ian Wright reaches over and grabs me and just kind of holding on to my parts and just kind of laughing at me, you know, with that gold tooth that he had in his mouth. It's kind of like, and he just said to me, you're not going anywhere, big man, stay there. And he was absolutely right. I wasn't going anywhere. And then I see Tony Adams like flailing for the ball. And I'm just thinking in my head, I'm going to be on match of the day, you know, and the goalkeeper is struggling there with Ian Wright and Tony Adams is burying this, you know, set piece in the back of the net. But luckily I got, we got away with it. But so that was my first encounter with kind of the Arsenal crew, Tony Adams, but Ian Wright just, I was not prepared for that at all. So, so the dark hearts of the Premier League. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what a player he was too. So, uh, definitely, uh, definitely. My other uh, center back uh, is not an Englishman. Uh, a clue: he's an Irishman. Not a liver. Not a. Uh, not a Liverpool club. Not a Manchester club. Was not a London club, but a big club nonetheless at that time. Kind of mid. Go on, Andrew. Mid nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Paul McGraw, what a player he was, you know, and again, a a guy that at least when I noticed, took notice of him, you know, he was in the latter end of his career and uh, played for a long time. Right. Marv, I think he had some pretty substantial arthritic knee issues and correct. I remember seeing an interview with him and I think all he really did at training was just ride the bike, you know, and jog a little bit and then they would roll him out there for the matches, but I mean, what a competitor and, you know, feel for the game and, and, uh, 
so I get that. Was he big? I can't ever remember him being no, the stature no. of an Adams or somebody like that. No, but he was he was strong. He was yeah. like solid, uh, as I would call someone solid. Like he was like very thick, but like yeah. quick as well with it. Quick, yeah, quick, yeah. and just a you know a velvety touch, um, but just a fierce competitor. Great positioning, angles. I mean, he was. I mean, he was hard to beat. If you could get around that guy uh, in any capacity, it was quite an effort. But you no, know, so uh, he was yeah. he was one of the ones there for me. Um, uh, I'll give you an honorable mention. Um, we'll save those for the end. We'll save those for the end. Okay. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, just, just before we go yeah. to the break, just want to um, jump in there. Like, again, I'm in the States, um, mainly um, with regards to soccer, as they call it. It's, it's, the, it's the women or girls who are, are predominantly playing this game and right. more well known for. How is it that you... Um, stroke German, US, born in US, got into soccer, as they call it here, at such a way, way back when it wasn't as fashionable? Um, really, my parents. So my parents are, uh, real quick flashback, both my parents are originally from Germany. Um, then they emigrated to New York uh, to leave Germany uh, and look for a new opportunity, which a lot of Germans did at that point. So they were young kids growing up post, you know, post-warrior in Germany. And there just wasn't opportunity there. And so they left. And so my dad had a friend from his hometown that started a business in New York and sponsored him and brought him over. And then he went back, married my mom and brought her over. So I was actually born in New York City in Manhattan. Uh, and my dad also was a goalkeeper. Uh, at that time, he was in the youth academy for a Hausfau in Hamburg in northern Germany. And when he came to the U.S., he was actually on the in the NASL with the New York Cosmos. He was on the farm team. So he was one of the backup goalkeepers. Um, I have a picture on the wall that I can show you over there from a game that he played in with the Cosmos and got man of the match. But he did that for a little while before he, you know, reality set in that you, know, you got to pay the bills and raise a family at two boys at that time. So uh, then we moved out to New Jersey. Uh, so that's. And New Jersey, New York, Marv, as you know, is big soccer hotbed, right? Yeah. A lot of big, and at that time it was all ethnic crowds, right? So I played for a German American club. I played for the Italian Americans in Raritan, New Jersey. Uh, so that's where kind of football took off for me. And then we moved down to Florida, South Florida, you know, as I was a little bit older, my, my dad was just a bad health and wanted warmer and needed a warmer climate. But anyway, give you an example is, Every Sunday there was a football show, you know, soccer made in Germany. I don't know if you guys ever saw that in Australia or you saw that in England, but it was no. one of the main football shows that got pushed out of Europe uh, that we were able to get in the U.S. So my dad literally had to buy like a NASA satellite dish that we put in the backyard. I mean, it was as big as a ping pong table, right, in the backyard. It rotated around, you know, at certain times of the day to get the shows. And he purposely bought that. And I know it pissed off our neighbors, you know, because it was right next to our neighbor's house. who was not happy, was in the ground. So this thing was massive. But he primarily got it so he could watch Soccer Made in Germany, which was a Sunday show, kind of like match of the day, right? Highlights all the goals, the teams. And so that's how I grew up, you know, watching uh, football made in Germany with my dad and playing youth sports. But I played other sports. Right. I wasn't a goalkeeper till I was 17 years old. So I didn't even think of being a goalkeeper. 17. Did you say? 17. Yeah. So I 
I was doing other things, playing basketball, which obviously is a great crossover sport for goalkeeping. I always playing football or soccer, but I wanted to be a striker. Right. So, and I started growing in my body size, 14 feet. And, you know, I went from five ten to six, two, and then I grew another three inches at university and ended up being six, five. And so my striker days were over because I just couldn't run. Uh, and I had a really good, just a teacher that was a teacher at the school and a mentor. And he was, a, a, also a football coach and assistant coach with our high school team. And he played at a lower level in university, like a division three level. So, you know, still competitive, but not, you know, at a division one, like you would see Marv with some of the bigger schools, Indiana, Virginia, Duke, UCLA, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And he's like, Jurgen, you can play at the next level. Cause he would just, he loved to shoot. And so I'd say after training and I would be the goalkeeper just messing around. And he's like, you're really, really good. And he's like, I think you could play at the next level. So for the next year, he just worked with me basically just, you know, took a couple thousand shots at me over the course of a year. And then I walked on to the Indiana university team. So I wasn't recruited by that school. I just it was on my flight path on the way back to Florida because I went to a boarding school for, for high school because the schools in Florida at that time weren't very good. And we had gone up to this, uh, it's called the Culver Academies and they have a summer camp program. You know, it's kind of what they call woodcraft camp. So you live in cabins and you do all kinds of artsy crafts, the outdoorsy stuff, sports. And so they recruited me there to play soccer. So anyway, I walked onto the Indiana team and went from the fifth goalkeeper to the starting goalkeeper after a couple games in my first season and then played every game for the next four years. And so I was able to win a national championship, you know, my sophomore year, I got Adidas player of the year that year as well. Then I started to get into the youth national teams. And then I was the, the alternate goalkeeper for the 1990 world cup team. So it well, and, and, was, the, and what in the same year within a span of about three oh. years, I did all that. Wow. And so he's a wow. Con. A walk on. I said, yeah, I just walked on and said, hey, Indiana won their first two national championships in Florida because they used the old Fort Lauderdale Strikers Stadium, you know, with Garrett Mueller and all those guys in the NASL. That's where the universities played their national championships because the weather was still warm in November, December. And it was, you know, perfectly sized, you know, stadium for that level of play. And uh, we lived an hour away. So we went to those two games and watched them uh, win. So I knew Indiana had a good team. And I just said, you know, if I'm going to try and play at this level, you know, I want to try to play for one of the best teams. So I just asked the coach if I could walk on and I did. And, you know, a couple guys got hurt at the right time and I got bumped up the bench, you know, from the third guy to the second guy. And, and by the third game, you know, the starting goalkeeper was just struggling a little bit. He had a knee injury. So he threw me in. And I think I just played out of pure fear and panic, you know, but I did a good enough job to play the next game, the next game, the next game. And it just, it just amounted to, you know, four years of consecutive play. Um, Excellent. Yeah. So that's how that kind of started, but it, it wasn't something I planned on. It just kind of organically happened, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So what we're going to do is we're going to pause it there. Um, and then when we come back from our break, um, a message from our sponsors, we will have Marv's 60 seconds and we'll hear the rest of Jürgen's uh, best 11. Add some art to your Adidas's with Dazzler's Craft Custom Trainers. Based in Exeter, UK, our small team of designers 
handcraft your Adidas with your favourite designs. From your favourite football team or your favourite player to your favourite band. All our current designs are available to view on our website, dazzlerscraft.co.uk. If you prefer, you can also commission your own bespoke design and let us get creative. Just give us a few ideas and leave the rest to us. Dazzlers Craft, bringing you ideas to life. Dazzlerscraft.co.uk Great. We are back for part two of Jürgen Sommer's My Best Eleven. We'll hand, as ever, straight over to Marv for Marv's 60 seconds. Straight over to you, Marv. Okay, Jürgen, let's go. Best player you've ever seen live. So that means not on TV, you've actually gone to a game and watched. What's the best player you've ever seen? Probably Roberto Maldini. Perfect. All right, VAR or no VAR? I would say yes, VAR. Favourite other sport? I would have to say tennis. Okay, best football ground you ever played at? You, for you, best football ground? Most dynamic ground uh, I've ever played at. Um, probably Azteca Stadium in Mexico City. Okay, penalty shootout or golden goal? Which one? That's a tough one. <laughs> I really like the golden goal. Choose one. Come on, time's not Golden seconds. goal. Not- golden goal. Okay. All right. If you wasn't a footballer, what would you have done? I think that's why I was a footballer because I couldn't think of anything else to do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Messi or Ronaldo? I'd go Ronaldo. All right. And if you could change one rule in a game, what would it be? Probably a little bit of an adjustment with the offsides rule. I think they can do a little bit there to get a little bit more dynamic. Okay. All right. Bundesliga, La Liga or Serie A? quality which which league say what was the first one sorry Bundesliga La Liga or Syria probably La Liga so um, just to unpack one of those answers you gave you said golden goal as a goalkeeper surely penalty shootout is only a win for you because you yeah. can't do you know what I mean you can only be a hero it's, yeah. so I was surprised you went for golden goal I'm kind of more of a purist of the game. I like to see the game won, you know, on a proper goal. I just hate to see it come, you know, to penalty shootouts. But you understand, right, with the time constraints and putting the putting the players through that that rigor. And it can be dangerous to the players too, right? They're extremely tired and and you're pushing them well beyond their physical limits at times if that golden goal scenario just continues on and on and on. So yeah. I understand the the need for uh, penalty shootout and I agree with you I one of the reasons I was able to play professional football was because of a, a penalty shootout when I was at university I was playing with the U, a U.S. team in Holland and uh, we were in a tournament called the Harlem Cup so this is Rude Hullet's tournament in his hometown and it went to uh, with the U.S. team that I was on it went to a penalty shootout in the semifinal and I saved four of the five penalty kicks which Whoa. actually got the attention of Luton Town and the chaperone that we were with and got me Marv to England later that summer. And then I turned around and came back to Holland with, uh, with a Luton town team to play in another tournament in Holland for preseason. So it actually helped me kind of get on that professional path, but just in the pure essence of the game, I'd rather see it, you know, I'd rather see a beautiful goal determine the outcome of a game than a penalty shootout. Ah, incredible. Incredible how it turns on, on, I'll say one shot, but four shots, but that's incredible how, how that's what got you a pathway to Luton. 
We will move on to midfielders, wherever you will. Start off with the holding, I suppose. Is that what it's called? Is that what you put them down as? Yeah, let's do that. We'll start with our holding midfielder. Um, so this, you're going to have to put your – I'll give you as many good clues as I can. It's, a, it's an international player. I don't think this player has ever played in England, mostly North America, South America. It's an international player, so he's represented his national team an icon on his national team um, and got to get up close and personal with him in competition here in the U.S. during the 94 World Cup, in which afterwards he ended up playing here in the U.S. for a while. And uh, so I got to play with him on an all-star team. So I actually did play with him on an all-star team, played against him in MLS, um, but was probably considered one of the best in the business at what he did. And oh. he had a unbelievable physical appearance that set him apart from most players in the world. I mean, he was very I'm gonna, recognizable. I'm going to, uh, have you got the same person? Maybe. Well, maybe. I would, well, I'll be honest, if I, if, go on, say it. If, I, if, I, if it's not the same person. Carlos Valderrama. You nailed it. You nailed it. I didn't, I, I didn't have him. Because he had the big, blonde, yeah. big hair. Yes, Carlos Valderrama played yeah, for yeah. Colombia, didn't he? Yeah. In, yeah, that's right. For a long time. And, and uh, you know, he wasn't the most athletic guy in the world, right? He, he wasn't going to outrun you, but... Skillful, quick. though. Skillful. Very skillful. Could not get the ball off this guy. I mean, he could he could take on uh, six guys in a phone box, you know, and still kind of have the ball at his feet. And before you could put any pressure on him, he already got rid of the ball and was already on to the next next move. But street football, you know, do you think there's something to be said for street football? Because that's obviously where he learned a lot of it. Absolutely do. I think the pendulum swing in the other way a little bit in football. I'm involved in youth sports here, youth football. We've got 600 kids in our club. And um, sometimes it can get too prescribed where parents and even players are expecting the coaches to really develop the kids. Uh, and Marv, you guys know we all probably have coach soccer and or football. We just don't have enough time at training with these kids, right? We get them two, three days a week for an hour, hour and a half. If we're lucky, that's not enough to really develop a high level player. Kids have to be willing to do things at home on their own with their friends in their own environment. They've got to be creative and imaginative when they play. So playing small sided games against each other, against older kids, especially you know, it's, it's got to be part of it. And you just don't see that here, at least where I don't see that as much as I would like to, because I think that's what really develops, can really develop a player, you know, uh, beyond no, I, I, team training. I totally agree with you, Jurgs. Um, you, don't, you don't get to see that now. And I, I mean, I don't know if it's, I mean, things, times have changed. I mean, I mean, Andrew, I mean, I know I'm, I'm a lot older than you, but I don't, as a kid, I played out all the time playing football with my friends every single evening. I just don't know if that happens now, if there's kids literally now in Luton when playing in the streets. I mean, there's so much. So if, I don't know if there is in Luton. I know my son's broken two windows in the past three weeks out in front well, of my house doing it. So... That's the question. That's the question <laughs> so they do it. Not, not, not that he's broken two windows, but refreshing to hear that he's playing in the garden. Sorry, that's what I mean. Yeah. Because yeah. there's so many like distractions, like with computers and um, yeah. handheld like games and stuff, and phones. Right. I mean, I just don't know if it actually happens as much as when I was a kid that it 
But you both think it makes you a better player, and that's what, obviously, getting back to Carlos Valderrama, the reason I asked the question was, obviously, he had to learn, probably as a younger player, to play on the streets before he got proper coaching. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So what made Valderrama that defensive shield? Do you like a defensive shield? Did you, did you obviously, as a goalkeeper, number one thing's about clean sheets for you? Or you seem a bit more of a purist as well, though? No, obviously with a Paul McGrath and Tony Adams in front of me and a Stuart Pierce and a Telfer, I'll be quite fine with that. <laughs> I think I got most of my worries covered with that group. So, uh, no, I, I just think uh, what Carlos was great at is, you know, he's not, he's not probably world renowned for his defensive skills right in front of the goal. He was, he played ahead of his time and in, in the fact that I think he played defense higher up the field and the other teams half were getting the ball and keeping the ball and building an attack further up the field just makes him such a dynamic player. Right. And I think that's come into fashion here later, you know, after my career more that, you know, teams were pressing more higher up the field. Let's defend higher up the field, put teams under pressure instead of, everybody dropping back at the halfway line and then we'll defend in our half. So Carlos was always very forward thinking and in the fact that he would do his job further up the field and he was capable of doing that right um, with, with his skill set. So you, you very rarely see him tracking a runner into the box at the far post, but his skill set was his ability to press and win the ball and keep the ball in the midfield. And he tended to do it from the center of the field forward. So um, that's what I liked about him in that role. Yeah, fantastic. So we move on to the the, the midfield, I suppose, and wherever you want to go, wherever you want to go from there. We'll start with one of the hardest positions to find, right? We'll go a left-sided player, so a left midfielder. Uh, again, this, this uh, goes back to England, kind of premiership kind of time. Um, uh, non-U.S. Uh, non or a non-English player, so it's a foreign player uh, for, with one of the big London clubs. I'll give you that. Um, what era? What seasons? Probably, you know, for me, so it was kind of mid-90s, you know, that 94 to 96, 97. Was he, was he French? Yes, he was. Was a national team player. Did he play for a black and white team as well? Yes. You got it, Andrew? Yeah, I, was, I wasn't sure. I was going, I don't know why. I, originally, I was going to Anders Limpar or something like that. But now, nothing like that. We've gone for the long, the long, the locks. The first person who made having long hair in football really fashionable and keeping it beautiful, I think. Have I got the right person? I think so. I think so. <laughs> David Gillard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So as I look across the midfield, I'm thinking of guys, uh, just to help you with the other two, um, that when you see them coming at you with the ball, you know they can do things from distance, they're dangerous. And as a goalkeeper, you're sitting back there and thinking, all right, you know, who can pull the trigger from 20, 30 yards out? And uh, all three of these guys can do that. And, uh, you know, you would not want to see one of these guys either barreling down the wing or, you know, cutting up the midfield coming at you as a goalkeeper, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Ginola was special. Ginola was definitely um, one of the first, like, flair players to come from abroad, I suppose, in right. a way. 
wouldn't you think Marv, he was kind of one of the first kind of incoming international players like yeah. that before there really was the number that we have today? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, and, and it was a case where, like, it was it, it was Newcastle he started. Was it Newcastle? Yeah, he went from Orcs there, I think. And then yeah, to Newcastle, to Newcastle, yeah. And then to Newcastle, Newcastle, yeah. Yeah, because then again, at the time, I suppose Keegan, you mean... Or was it Keegan who probably brought him? Newcastle were one of the big guns, weren't they? When they were going for the for the for the title. Oh, they were all about foreign flair because they were bringing Aspria, yeah. those type of players, weren't they? You know, Aspria. You remember Tony Thorpe's goal at Newcastle in the FA Cup run? Yeah. To, to level the yeah. score and take us to. I'm still. Oh, these lights keep going off. Because um, because I'm still good friends with Thorpe. That's all he talks about. I said, that's probably that's, that's gone. That you probably can't. You, I'm, I'm, and listen, you scored more than one goal. Trust me, you can't keep talking about that goal all the time. But no, was it was a, a great, fantastic goal. Is this a was, great goal? That was a great goal at a, at the perfect time, right, Marv, to get out of there. Yeah. I never seen Pleaty so excited in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can only imagine the amount of water Pleaty put on the Kenilworth Road pitch before the you know the return game. He loved just kind of mopping up the field, making it super wet and sloppy so we could run at him. <laughs> While we're on that topic, um, the FA Cup run, what was that like for particularly obviously an American uh, coming across and seeing the magic of the FA Cup? What was that like, that run? You know, that was probably one of the best sporting life experiences that I had. You know, I was uh, obviously a very young pro and, and uh, you know, once Alec, kind of had left and gone to Sunderland and I got to kind of take over the reins there in goal. And then to put together a run like that um, with the team we had, right. Obviously Luton, we were in the first division. We had very good players, right, Mark, but we tended to be yeah. a lot of younger guys uh, in there. When you look across the board, it's just the nature of being a, maybe a smaller club that had to sell players, but you know, we had fantastic players and you go across all the names uh, that were there even prior uh, to when I got there uh, for the 88, the Littlewoods Cup, right? All the players that yeah. were there then, a few of those guys were still hanging around, the Steen brothers and Mick Hartford and so forth. And uh, then to have an opportunity to run with, and I watched that in, in the U.S., you know, so that was what was really cool for me is when I was thinking about coming to Luton and they were doing all that, you know, that was in the back of my mind because I was watching it from the U.S. And then to have the opportunity to do it kind of with our group of players, um, you know, you had the Mark Pembridges of the world and the Kerry Hughes, you know, the Welsh guys, we had the Irish guys, the Scottish guys, the English guys, and we had a really young dynamic team and a lot of players went on to play, you know, a lot of great clubs after that. Yeah. Um, but to play the teams we did, the Newcastles, the Chelsea's, the West Ham's home and away, and just finding ways to win and stay in the cup. That was, that was a lot of fun. And then, you know, playing the semifinal in Wembley was really cool too, especially for me, right? It's kind of a, the holy grail of football and, and one of the biggest, greatest venues in the world. And my mom was able to come over from Florida to watch the game. And and uh, so it was super cool. You know, it's just, again, I pinched myself. I got to play at Wembley a couple times, you know, that in the cup game. And then with the U.S. team versus England, I got to play on the uh, in that game. Um, so I, I did actually... Uh, play against those a lot of those guys that are in my list here but that was so cool right to have that chance and thinking to myself you know it doesn't get much better than this you know and so that was fun right. but that was that was just so much fun to see 
a club like Luton Town and our, you know, our young team really kind of take on some of the bigger names in English football at that time. Yeah. So just going back to what you just mentioned about playing at Wembley and stuff. And again, I was going to come on to that, but you brought up about the, the national team and you did play against England at Wembley. Um, what was that like? I mean, and how did it come about? Was, it, was that your first cap for the full national team? No, guys, I've had a, I don't know the record keeping at US, but I, I was involved with the national team. Uh, for a long time. I started in 1988. So I was at university still after we won the national championship, which was my sophomore year. So I was probably 20-ish, just maybe 20 at that point. But again, I was an alternate, I was a backup goalkeeper. Uh, so, go, you know, obviously if you're not the goalkeeper, you're not getting a lot of caps because only one guy's playing. And uh, so I was around the U.S. national team and our World Cup teams from 1988 to 2004. So I was on the but scene. What, sorry, yes, but what was but what was the first ever game when you got your first cap? You played for the U.S. What, who was that against, and how was you that? You know, it was it was probably you know one of these uh, smaller Concacaf countries. You know, here in the U.S. during one of the Gold Cups or one of the summer events that I was back for, and I don't know how closely they recorded my caps compared to some of the other. I think I had a, a few more than that, but. Nobody at honestly with the U.S. was kind of run like a mom and pop shop. You know, when I honestly, <laughs> it really was Marv, it really was back in the day. There was only a small handful of people, you know, Alan Rothenberg, Sunil Galati. You know, I can name them off, you know, three or four people that really ran it, you know, and I don't they weren't, you know, the sport wasn't as established as it was in right. the UK with the FA and the national teams. You know, those all those things were kind of new to them. So I would pick up games during the summers or we'd go to the Copa America in South America somewhere, the Gold Cup in the U.S., World Cup qualifiers. But I was also the first player to – first goalkeeper, one of the first U.S. players to play overseas and really be established and be, like, there for a long period of time. Uh, I was constantly getting called back. You guys probably didn't realize it as much, but Pleaty was a really big help for me in dealing with our – World Cup coach Bora Militinovich for the 94 World Cup, the Yugoslavian coach, because um, it came down to me and Casey Keller, you know, who's going to get that last, you know, goalkeeping, goalkeeping spot, you know, it was Tony Miola, Brad Friedel, and then myself, I got the U.S. poster right there, right, from that oh, 94 great. team. But Pleaty was a big deal for me to make that team, but I couldn't leave, right? Why would I leave Luton Town? where we do things like this FA cup run, the games I'm playing, the environments that I'm playing to come back and play, you know, St. John's in the Virgin islands or, you know, El Salvador, you know, it just didn't make any sense. So I, plus I told the coaches, listen, I'll, when I'm home in the summer, I'll come play and be available, but I'm not leaving a Luton town or a Queens park Rangers to come back and, you know, come into a mini camp and, you know, play Canada. I'm like, you know, I'm going to, I'm staying here and playing here because I don't want to lose my job and I want to keep progressing <laughs> here. So I didn't, I just didn't come back as much. I just went for the major events. I was, you know, I was involved in three world cup teams, multiple Copa Americas. And, you know, so it was a lot of fun, but I, yeah, I didn't play as much because I it just wasn't willing to leave and come back because it should, I have been called upon to be a, you know, a goalkeeper in one of these big international games, I would have been better prepared 
you know, continuing my career in England and going flying right. back and forth. And that's a challenge for a lot of the U.S. guys. They have to fly so far to get back for games. Listen, the clubs, they don't like that a whole bunch, right? It's different right. if you're going from England to Germany or England to Italy and you're back in a couple hours. But if you're flying to Mexico City, you know, and it's a 14, 15 hour flight and then you got to play, turn around, come back in two days, turn around and play back in the premiership. That doesn't yeah. go over too well, you know? Yeah, and I think that's why a lot of the international teams, South Americans, they they quite often now play each other, but in right. Europe. So they right. play at the Emirates, they play at Neuerkamp, they play somewhere like that, because to yeah. save the players having to go back and forth. And of course, we saw the debacle that happened what, a month ago now from the, um, the Brazil-Argentina game that was called off. Right. From the absolute facade that happened there with COVID and players not allowed to come in, and that's another that's another conversation. We di- yeah. we we did digress Mark a bit. Bosnich, like Mark Bosnich, right, the goalkeeper for Aston Villa. I'm sure you had the same. That's difficult to fly all the way back to Australia for games and then come all the way back. That's oh, a whole day. You spend it one whole. It's 24 hour flight. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole day on the flight. Then you have the two or three days to recover after the time changes and the flight and he's putting his career at Aston Villa at risk, you know, and yeah, no, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Right. So you got left, you got Ginola, who's going in the middle and who's going on the right. All right. This is probably one of the biggest names should be easy for you guys to get kind of commanding central midfield figure played for one of the biggest, most recognized clubs in the world, an English club, international player um, scored a late, late goal against me. Uh, at Queen's Park Rangers when they were pushing to get into uh, one of the European Cup competitions. I think the referee must have let almost 20 minutes of injury time go before they could score and tie the game. So so I still have nightmares of that goal going past me to this day, but just a tremendous competitor, probably maybe known for an incident where he kind of came off the field, uh, you know, into the stands at some, at some fans <laughs> that were abusing him. So... Uh, again, one of the players that seeing him on the other side of the pitch and watching him operate, you just get a real appreciation for really how good these guys are. Another Frenchman. How yeah. attacking is this team going to be? He's playing in the field. I know. Eric Cantona. Yeah. Yeah. So he was what a player he was. And again, just overall soccer IQ, you know, and just understanding of the game and, awareness of everybody around him on his team and the ability to play a variety of different balls. Uh, and so late in the game, we were beating him one, nothing at, <clears throat> at a QPR. And again, we went into injury time, more and more injury time. It was almost as if, you know, the ref wanted these guys to get a goal so they wouldn't, you know, get some points from us. And uh, so Alan McDonald was our center back and uh, David Barsley was in there as a right back. And, some came down the wing cross comes in the box and who's steaming in at the last minute for a header to the far post was Eric Cantona and I'm scrambling, trying to get across the goal to get something on it, but just too little, too late. He's too big, too powerful. Just kind of put the game winner away. But again, just somebody in that role in the midfield that I just, for me being in England and having a chance to be on the field with somebody like that, it, again, was a great learning opportunity, super special just to see a, a player at that level play and operate and kind of, yeah. you know, he controlled the tempo of the game uh, for the most part. No, definitely. Fantastic pick. So next to Ginola Cantona, do we have a trio of Frenchmen? No, we don't. It, 
it kind of sounds like a Frenchman, but it's an Englishman. And it's not at a major club. He's one of the loyalists that probably got over 400 caps with that particular club. Was probably one of the most creative English football players ever. Maybe he didn't look the part, but definitely was the part. Did probably, does he did he play on the did he play down the south coast? He did. He was born. If I think he was born in the right place, he was actually born only about thirty miles from France. He was born on the Shannon Islands. He was born on the Shannon Islands, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Matthew Letitia. Yes. What a player he was. What a player he was. He was Glenn Hoddle before Glenn Hoddle. You know what I mean? <laughs> this guy could play. And uh, again, I was telling Tommy, my son, and you know, he obviously has no idea who this guy is. And then he looked him up and had quite an impressive, you know, Wikipedia page and resume. And I said, Tommy, this guy with the ball at his feet from 40 yards away, you would not take your eye off this yeah. guy as a goalkeeper. Get him to jump on YouTube and look at all those free kicks oh. where he just, where he flicked them up to himself and the free kicks. And he started playing volleys. It was amazing. Keep you up. He's then put in the top corner. Yeah. Incredible. Dead ball situations around the box, penalty kicks. I don't I ever remember him missing one. And uh, I just remember, like, this guy's going to embarrass me if there's a penalty kick or a free kick around the box. And so it just scared the living shit out of me, just seeing him on the other side of the field going, please, you know, just keep him as far away from me as possible. But what a player. So, again, just to see the, the artist, this guy was a true artist, right, when he played. So he did some things uh, maybe most managers, you know, didn't like because it wasn't as structured and disciplined as they would want it. But, man, so creative, so uh, so silky smooth with the ball. I really enjoyed kind of watching him play and enjoying his goals and and uh, probably one of the best in the business at what he did, in my opinion. So, Oh, yeah. Listen, I think when when we look back now, I mean, on, on some players' careers who's graced to premiership, Matthew Letizia has to be up there. And for me, from the goals he scored, they were like right. unbelievable goals. I mean, I mean, I played against him right. when he was when he was a youth team player because we used to play in the southeast counties against Southampton, and, and we I first came across him when we lost thirteen one to Southampton, and he scored seven. So wow. it was it, it, it was he was already like on the radar, and what he went on to do in the Premiership was no surprise to me or anyone who knew him at Southampton. Um, Fantastic player. Right, right. Yeah. Sensational player. So you've got Ginola Cantona Letizia servicing who, Jürgen? All right. Well, I'll, I'll give you probably a little harder one. This is more of somebody I played with, so I probably should have done this across the board. But this is somebody I played with. He's not American, did play in England, did play in the U.S., did play for the U.S. national team. Got it. Played for multiple clubs in the U.K., London and Northern clubs. I think I got it. Did he play for oh, Chelsea? He did. And he was, Marv would know, he was a, he's South African yeah. by descent, but he became a naturalized U.S. citizen with his family here in Florida. And he's a very good friend of mine to date. He lives Is in... He? I've been, yeah. I've been trying to contact him to get him on. He, he's, he's Obviously, he doesn't like me then. Wow. Okay. No, it's just... I'll get him for you, Marv. No, but he, but he, he was, we always quite aloof. I play golf with him from time to time. So yeah. when I'm in Florida, I go up to see him in Sarasota. And, and uh, he became quite the golfer here, if you did not he know did. that. He did. 
Did he turn pro? I thought he turned pro. He tried. He was very, very close. He was very close. He was on the Nike tour for a while. And and, played for uh, QPR as well, Andrew. Luton, QPR, Chelsea, Andrew's face. Coventry as well. Yeah. Now go on. Roy Wegley. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Got to give Roy a shout. He's a good guy. Oh, yes. 100%. Really good guy. Really good guy. I One of the first Americans to really grace the Premier League, well, the England, really, wasn't he? No, yeah, you're right. Have, sorry, I should have got him. I apologize. He's one of the first U.S. guys to really get over there. And, and yeah. before, I don't even think most of the Americans even knew he was American. He was over there <laughs> playing, right? Because it goes back to my previous point. It was such a small mom and pop shop that they had trouble <laughs> just even tracking who was who and where they were. And But Roy was arguably one of the first guys over there and really made an impact, right? He started at Luton. That's why I yeah. kind of followed him a little bit because he kind of had a similar path to me with it, you know, being at Luton and then going to Queens Park Rangers and then Chelsea and then Coventry and on. So um, he was, he was at Chelsea first. Yeah. I think he was at Chelsea first and Luton brought him for 50, 50,000, I think at the time. Yeah. Right. And then he went to QPR and I remember the chance, you know, Ooh, ah. Uh, you know, we've got, uh, ooh, ah, uh, Cantona, we've got Wagerly or, you know, whatever yeah. his chance are that I've seen out there. But so he's a lot of fun. And he was my roommate on the U.S. national teams on a lot of trips. So I really got to know him. And, uh, I mean, Roy was just a super dedicated athlete. Just to give you a quick example of what he was capable of. So he was ACL deficient in a knee. So he had a torn ACL uh, right before one of the World Cups on the 98 World Cup team. Um so we were going to France for the World Cup. And so he found the best sports performance guy. And there's a guy named Vern, Vern Gambetta down in Florida that's just kind of on a whole nother level, just really elite performance guy. So Roy started working out with this guy religiously, like, you know, twice a day over the top to get ready to be with the U.S. team and try to make the World Cup team. Short end of the story is he ended up being the fittest guy, you know, the bleep tests and everything else we were doing at those times, you know, all the running stuff. I think Roy at 38 came in as the most next to Kobe Jones. He was the most fit player we had in the group at 38 years old. You know what Roy was like, Marv. He just kept yeah. immaculate care of himself. You know, it's like kind of like Ronaldo, right? Everything he ate, everything he drank, everything he wore, his hair was perfect. Yeah. You know, he just <laughs> he looked apart, but he kept himself in such great nick that he ended up impressing the staff and you know, probably shouldn't have. <laughs> Made the team had they known his ACL issue, but the the sports coach he had really strengthened his quads and his hamstrings and, you know, all his muscles around his knee to help him stabilize. And he was still able to perform and, and uh, his experience, he's one of the experienced guys you carry on your roster. And he's not going to be a starter and run all the miles for you, but he's one of the guys if you need to bring into the game as an experienced player could definitely help you in a, in a situation or two. So he just ended up being a good, good guy. He scored that. He scored that goal um, against. Who was it? Was it Leeds for QPR? When he dribbled from the halfway line, was it? Yeah, from the halfway line, took on yeah, about it, six, six players yeah. and scored. Yeah, so he had he had quite a good following there, at QPR, and you know, having touched some of the clubs that he did as well, uh, that's made it fun and gotten to know him a lot better over the years here. Um, so I always try to find time to at least see him once a year when. You know, I get down. Well, the you're, 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 you're the connection then, yes. You'll have to get him for me. I, I, yeah, I'll get him for you. Not, not a problem. 
Roy's a good guy. I like Roy. I did yeah. like him. He's Fantastic. Good. All right. Next, last next to Roy is. So this is a striker for a, uh, a big premiership club, international. Um, uh, try not to give it away too much. Blonde hair. Played in the game at QPR one time that Lee Dixon came screaming down the wing late in the game. It was wet. And remember those miter delta premiership balls we used to play with this thing had soaked up so much water it was like a cannonball by the time we got to the end of the game so lee dixon fires in this cross it's probably no higher than two or three feet off the ground and you know what he was like so this thing had so much velocity on the cross coming in and this guy took it first time out of the air top of the box i'm on standing on the six yard line six yard box thinking you know i'm going to cut the angle here and he rips this volley and it actually flies by my head, clips my ear and goes into the top corner. And all I could think was like, thank God that thing didn't hit me square in the face because it would have broken my nose and knocked out all my I think I think this could be your favorite player, Andrew. It is. It's my favorite, my hero, my hero of a player. Is it the Dutch wonder man, Dennis Burkamp? It is. It is. Good call. Dennis Burkamp. Oh, yeah. Great call by you. Great call. So I'll give you a quick story there. So after that goal went in against me, Casey Keller calls me up and like just heckling me, you know, cause it was, you know, obviously on match of the day and all this stuff and making fun of me. I can't believe he just, you know, ripped your head off. <laughs> and probably two weeks later, they were Arsenal was up at Leicester city. Right. And same thing. Lee Dixon comes out of the back, but this time he's about at the halfway line and he clips a ball to the top of the box to Dennis Burkamp, who, Ball comes up over his head. Defender comes out. He takes it out of the air with his left foot, yeah. flicks, flicks it over himself, over the defender, and then hits a volley up into the top corner on Casey. So I was able to call Casey back. And go, <laughs> and he just tore the ass out of you, Casey. Okay, I'm watching all the highlights. So uh, yeah, what a you know what a tremendous talent he was. You know to to be on the field against him was was kind of special. So. Yeah, another player who took up, look, looked after himself and yeah. played for so, so long at the top, top, top level. Yeah, he did, right? He was a, a true professional and was there in that on the international scene and the premiership scene for quite a while. So, Well, I mean, you picked a lot of players in here the, that are well, pretty much actually anybody outside of um, the defence that is very, very unpredictable. What would you say to young goalkeepers or... As to, is there anything you can do to prepare yourself against them? Is it you always have to be on your toes? Is it expect the unexpected, or is it just <laughs> sometimes there's just nothing you can do? No, you're right. Sometimes, like with goalkeeping training, sometimes it becomes so repetitive, right? You're doing the same motions over and over, right? Whether it's a goalkeeping coach or it's a finishing exercise, and it can be a little bit generic and stale. Um, so when I look at some of the like Tony Roberts is a great, was a great goalkeeper and a great goalkeeping coach. And he's still coaching now. I think he's at Wolverhampton Wanderers. And I watch his videos sometimes. And, you know, I did some goalkeeping coaching here for our national teams for a little while. And we have a little bit of exposure to South America. So there's opportunities to go to Argentina and places like that for, you know, goalkeeping seminars and stuff. And so they do, a, and Tony did a lot of this where there's obstacles now that you would put in a goalkeeper's pathway, whether, you know, yeah. it's some PVC piping or just to get some unpredictability in the exercises, right. To get the ball doing some different uh, last minute deflections and things like that. So I think the more that you can incorporate that into goalkeeping training, the better, because if it's just 
you know, going through a finishing exercise where every shot kind of looks the same, you know, that's great work, but you also have to prepare yourself, you know, in these high pressure games and situations for the unexpected, you know, you look at Ronaldo's goal the other night uh, in the champions league game, you know, just how quickly it can, you know, a combination of give and goes can happen. And all of a sudden a, a finishing opportunity presents itself from there. And you have to be as a goalkeeper ready to respond for that. So it's not only your brain and your eyes that have to kind of see and read the play. It's, are your feet right? Is your weight distributed evenly? Do you have balance? You know, can you get to get to things that you weren't maybe expecting, you know, in in an awkward position. So um, I think, you know, the, Peter Schmeichel obviously is a great goalkeeper in that respect that he could come out and smother and swallow things up that even he would admit that he wasn't quite sure where it was going or how he was going to stop. And he just found a way to come out and made him make himself as big as possible to kind of present, you know, the biggest shield that he could. So he's probably one of the best guys at that. So yeah, I like the unpredictable, you know, as a goalkeeper, those are the guys that scare you the most that are unpredictable. Right. (laughs) So, um, that's why a lot of those guys made my team, but I do have a Mentions. couple honorable mentions for you. So yeah. this one, might, this might be, I have a good backstory to this one too. So this guy might be a little bit harder for you guys, but uh, it's a central, I'll give you this. He was a central American player. Uh, he spent some time in the U S I tried to get Queens park Rangers to sign him when he came over on trial and at that point, Ray Wilkins had left and Stuart Houston and Bruce Rioch came from Arsenal to QPR. So we had him in the clubhouse for two weeks, but we did not sign him. And he went on to do wonderful things and, and uh, you know, could have helped us at that time. So he's, and he's a central American. defender. Central no, defender, he's a striker. Say? I'll tell you, he's a striker. Oh, striker. He also went on to, to play for the team and manage his national team in was it the last World Cup? They were a small Central American country. They went the furthest in the World Cup that any Central American company country ever has in their history. And he was an integral part of the management team of that. I'm going to throw Paolo Wontrepay in. Yes, yes. Costa Rica? Yeah, Costa Rican international. Well so done, Andrew. QPR came to me and said, hey, we want to get some videos of this guy. Can you help us through U.S. soccer? So I acquired a handful of videos because obviously we see them a lot. And I think Paulo spent some time in the U.S. He was raised in Texas for a little while. Again, the U.S. asleep at the wheel. Didn't bring this guy in and give him a youth cap, right, which they should have. Uh, So he goes on to represent Costa Rica. But he came in. So we've seen him uh, in World Cup qualifying and, you know, in some of the events that we play here on a regular basis. And you could tell this guy was, he was raw, right? He was young and raw and, but super, super talented, lots of pace. You could tell he just had, he had fire and he had the tools. And so I told, uh, you know, Stuart and Bruce Riak, Hey, you got to sign this guy. He's, he's phenomenal. You know, he's a up and coming young talent. I mean, he's tearing the backside out of us in the U S and the CONCACAF uh, single-handedly. And uh, you know, it was all frowned of and it was a it was a two player deal. They had to bring in Mauricio Solis and Paulo Anchopi together to, you know, they were trying to bring him in together with the agent. Anyway, we let the guy go. And I think he went on to play for Derby County. And then he yeah. went on for Manchester City, I think West Ham. You know, he scored some great goals. I think one season he had 27 premiership goals and was one of the leading goal scorers. So yeah. uh, you know, we had him in the, you know, we had him there, two hundred thousand dollars 150,000 pounds we could have had him at that point at QPR and 
I was trying to, you know, work with Paulo to say, you, you know, come here, come here, come here. We, and we didn't sign him and we cut him loose and he went on to really do some good things. So, uh, but what a, what a talented player he was. Um, and again, then he went on to coach and get into management for the Costa Rican national team. And they had a great run in the world cup, you know, so. Yeah. Fantastic run. Um, another uh, honorable mention for me. Do you want to just, do you want to reel them off? We don't worry about guessing. Do you want to go through them? Yeah. I'll go through them real quick. Another yeah. midfielder. This guy was you know, Ray Wilkins, you know, uh, yeah. rest in peace, Ray, but obviously gave me a great chance at Queens Park Rangers. He did come on as player manager a couple times when I was actually playing. So I could say I played with him, but what a world-class gentleman he was. And uh, you know, I felt, you know, one of the best the English have ever put out there in terms of player, person, manager, and, and really just kind of took care of me and Susie and, and just world-class. So I have nothing but the highest regards for Ray and what he did. Um, you know, from a goalkeeper standpoint, I'll give Brad Friedel a shout out as an honorable mention. Um, you know, Brad and I go back a little bit. I didn't realize this, but I mentioned earlier when I walked on to Indiana University, you know, I came out of nowhere to play for that team. In doing that, you know, we won, you know, the highest award my my second year there, the national championship. And I got Adidas goalkeeper of the year that year. That actually kicked Brad. Brad was supposed to come to Indiana on a full scholarship and play there. But because I was there, we had just won. He went to UCLA instead. And uh, we committed from Indiana, went to UCLA. And uh, when and another kind of fun fact, in that national championship year in 1988, Casey Keller was in Bloomington, Indiana with Portland University. Shaka Hislop was there with Howard University. And I was there with Indiana University. So we beat Casey in the semifinal. And then we beat Shaka Hislop and Howard University in the final to win the national championship 1-0. And all three of us. And Brad, who was supposed to be at Indiana at UCLA, all ended up in England as goalkeepers. So what a crazy world. But yeah, Brad, was, yeah. Brad was a hell of a goalkeeper and, and probably the hardest working goalkeeper that I've actually ever worked with or competed against. I mean, this guy would work and work and work. He'd outwork anybody. So um, and again, he had great skill sets, great tools, you know, very strong mentally. What a competitor he was. So, and, you know, I think he's one of the. In my opinion, of all the U.S. goalkeepers that went over there, I think he's had probably the most profound career, the longest career, tons of games, obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's a good guy. Um, the other one more, one more, one more, one more, one more. And then we're good. Cleedy, I would probably say I have to thank Cleedy as an honorable mention as a manager, right? Just to kind of hold on there, hold on, yeah. So we're gonna go in. Is it, what who? Because we always pick a manager as well to lead this eleven you've picked. So oh, gotcha. um, he might come into the reckoning there. So which man yeah. manager? And we are actually going to nail you on a manager who has managed you. So it can't be any manager you've ever played against or All right. So you're too obvious. So obviously he's special for me, but there's one other guy there. I, I may or may not have mentioned him earlier in the, in the show, but he would be an international manager that came in uh, to manage the U.S. team kind of during my uh, time with the, my primary time with the U.S. national team. I don't know how many more clues I can give you. So he's not a U.S. citizen. He's definitely a, a European. Uh, but yeah, he's the Yugoslavian man manager Yugoslavia. in yeah. USA yeah. 94. Goran. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Starts with Bora Milutinovic. So Bora. Okay. 
Aura was great. He was kind of exactly what we needed in the U.S. at that time, right? We we had a lot of guys on our team that were playing in England. Tab Ramos was in Spain and some other places. So we had a lot of guys thought they were really good players. Uh, but on the world stage, on a World Cup stage, you know, it, it really didn't, you know, we weren't in the same company, so to speak, in terms of total depth and talent as a team. So Bora was able to really shape what we had, which is, right, very competitive guys, very athletic. You know, we could cover ground, we could defend, uh, maybe not as creative uh, in front of goal or in midfield as we wanted to be, but he was able to shape our team and give us a very competitive advantage, especially being at home in the World Cup. And, and uh, yeah, he's, you know, he was a little bit of a magician as a manager. He could make things happen and obviously went on to manage, I think, four different countries and four different World Cups. So uh, we just had a great relationship and he really kind of took me under his wing and uh, kind of brought me along. And he and Pleady actually formed quite a, because he came to scout me right before the, you know, the 90 world, 94 World Cup team. And, and uh, he spent a lot of time with Pleady because it really came down to Tony Miola was going to be the starting goalkeeper because he was in the U.S. playing games. He was kind of the poster child of our national team. Uh, and so Brad Friedel was on the team as well. And then it really came down. There was that debate. Casey was at uh, Millwall at the time and I was at Luton Town and we were both playing. And so the U.S. guys would come over quite a bit and scout us. And Pleady just built such a great rapport with Bora, you know, talking about the game. And you know what Pleady's like, you know, he's such yeah. a, you know, such a student of the game and he's talking about things that most managers don't talk about. And Bora was really cut from the same cloth. And uh, I think that was a big reason why that definitely helped me make that team and uh, to continue on. So, yeah, he was a great manager, learned a lot yeah. from him. Perfect. And our last question, Jörg, before you go, um, just for all the listeners and um, the teams you play, but what are you doing now? What are you at? Uh, so when I was done with football, I was, you know, honestly, I was really done with football because I was fortunate to play for a while. Uh, the end of my career was a little bit difficult. I had two ACL reconstructions, one in each knee. Uh, in, my la- in my last couple of years of professional football with the New England Revolution, Stevie Nickel was our manager. It was a lot of fun to play with Stevie uh, and actually see kind of a middle earth person play football like Stevie Nickel could is what amazing player he was too. Uh, but I tore my Achilles tendon, you know, right before the 2002 world cup, which kind of took, knocked me out of that team. Uh, and so I really had to think hard, what was I going to do next? And Susie and I were starting a family. We had our second child, Noah in Boston. And then uh, we just decided to say, Hey, we're done. MLS still wanted me to play MLS, but I was just mentally done. We went back here to Indiana, Indianapolis to be around my wife's family, primarily for our kids to have, you know, grandparents and aunts and uncles around. And I got into medical sales. So I was doing total joint replacement, hips and knees and blood and bone products for a company called Depew Orthopedics, a Johnson & Johnson company. So I did medical devices for a while. Then I got into commercial real estate uh, as well uh, for about a about 10 years, I did that. And then I got kind of pulled back into football. You know, I did things with the youth national teams for the United States. I was with Bob Bradley from 2007 to the 2010 World Cup as a goalkeeper coach for the U.S. national teams, did a Copa America and Venezuela in 2007 and numerous gold cups and other things. But what I realized was I, 
I was just done with the traveling because I what happens is, as we all know, you just have to spend so much time on the road scouting, recruiting, you know, playing games, being involved in, you know, the Federation in Chicago. And it just took up too much time and took me away from my family that I was missing what my kids were doing. Uh, so I you know, just kind of hunkered back in, got settled in. Uh, then I was offered the Indy 11 job, which is kind of a lower level professional football here in the U.S. So I was kind of a I was a head coach there for three years. I brought Paul Telfer over to coach yeah. with me, as you know, and did that. And uh, so I enjoyed that to try to get professional football kind of up and running here in Indianapolis. Um, but, you know, as all managers go, that doesn't last forever. And then I got back into youth football. There's a, a great community organization here. Um, that's kind of the, the primary youth development sports organization for our community, Carmel, Indiana. Uh, it's called the Carmel Dads Club. And, and I oversee the most of the, uh, if not all the soccer development here. So we have over 600 travel kids and about 2,500 uh, rec soccer players. So it's just managing wow. that facilities. And, and uh, it's kind of grown on me. You know, it's the impact you can have with kids and being around young families. It's, it's really fun and enjoyable. Uh, I'm thankful my wife is a professional, you know, she's a realtor and, and does very well in, in, re, in residential real estate here in our area and kind of, you know, brings home the bacon. So that allows me <laughs> a, little, a little bit of freedom to continue to do this. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun. So I really enjoy the youth side of the game and it's not necessarily developing the most competitive team or the only coaching the best players. I kind of focus on the younger element of the club, the U8s, U9s, U10s. And quite often I have coaches that'll coach the more competitive teams. And I like, you know, putting kids on teams that maybe would get cut at other clubs and we create teams and keep these kids playing and just create a, you know, environment and try to make them passionate about the sport and, and uh, love soccer. And they do. And usually a couple diamonds come out of that, you know, that we didn't expect at nine and 10, but by 11 and 12, you know, they're playing you know, they're playing for the higher level teams They're playing for their high school teams. And I've had kids that I've coached here that have gone on to play uh, for our national team and, you know, various college teams. So that's always fun. Uh, so I do have my hand in the sport a little bit here. Um, but prim primarily, I just do whatever my wife tells me to do. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. All right, Yerds. Fantastic. That was Owl. It's lovely to hear from you. Thank you so much for giving up your time, Jürgen. And that was Jürgen Summers, my best 11. <laughs> <laughs>